I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Once again, Argentina is struggling with its debt. It's unlikely to be able to make a payment that's due today. Negotiations will carry on, but the country's ninth default would only compound the misery that the pandemic has brought. And before Yvonne Boland made her name, there was little place for women in the poetry of Ireland. There, the poet was a towering figure in epic histories. But her verses brought searing insights into everyday life and made women's voices essential. First up, though. The 13th National People's Congress opened in China today. It began with 3,000 delegates in masks applauding the arrival of President Xi Jinping and the rest of the party leadership. The event is largely about symbolism, setting out policies that are then rubber-stamped by the delegates. But this year, the gathering is taking place in the shadow of a bigger issue. China has to deal with the political and economic consequences of the coronavirus, with discontent at home and criticism from abroad. Planned policy changes emerging from the Congress are already proving controversial. But for the Communist Party, those moves are plainly intended to signal confidence and control. Well, I mean, the first big thing is that the National People's Congress, China's annual rubber stamp parliament, is taking place at all. Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor and is based in Shanghai. It was delayed by more than three months and so uh, this shows that the government believes they, they basically have coronavirus beaten and they're going ahead with the meeting. Uh, the, the next big thing is that they've dropped their annual GDP target for the first time in 25 years. And then the third big headline is a legislation which will be introduced targeting Hong Kong uh, and basically limiting the judicial independence of the city of Hong Kong. And what's the significance of, of that Hong Kong proposal? Well, Hong Kong has been functioning under a policy known as one country, two systems, where effectively it has remained independent in the legal realm from China. China has been whittling away at that over the years. As far back as 2003, China had wanted Hong Kong to pass a security law, which protesters and citizens of Hong Kong were afraid really would have limited, put an end to Hong Kong's independence made it easy for the government to go after free media, free association, the liberties that make Hong Kong what it is. There were big protests in 2003. Over the years, there have been protests that have flared up again and again. Of course, last year, there were big protests against an extradition bill. No administration in Hong Kong has been willing to try to put this 
security law into force to pass it. What the government in Beijing now appears to be doing is introducing legislation that will effectively, through the back door, oblige the government in Hong Kong to pass the security law. And uh, for people in Hong Kong, this looks like it's the death knell of the one country, two systems approach. And so why, why push this through now? I mean, I think there's two big reasons. One is what's transpired in, in Hong Kong in recent years, especially last year with the big anti-extradition bill protests, sort of feeling uh, in the mainland that Hong Kong was basically impossible to control, that the government wasn't able to pass through needed legislation. And so a uh, feeling that the government basically had to exert its authority in Hong Kong. And so the time had come. The second factor is that with coronavirus, with countries around the world dealing with the pandemic and arguably being distracted by the pandemic, I think China sees an opening now to push through extremely contentious legislation, basically wagering on the fact that other countries are not going to be able to mount a big pushback and that the protesters in Hong Kong might be more easily subdued, uh, you know, in the name of dealing with, with the health emergency. And the other big headline outcome of the Congress so far is this dropping of a, of a GDP target. What, what do you make of that? Well, that, that is very important. I mean, this has been a focal point of China's economic policy making for, you know, well more than two decades. It's a number that signals the government's intentions. It's also a way that it's able to judge how local officials are performing. You know, it's really the bread and butter of, of economic planning in China. This year, because of the extreme slowdown, especially in the first quarter, the government determined that it just was not able to announce a target. Um, Li Keqiang, the prime minister, in his annual work report, which kicks off the parliament uh, on Friday morning, you know, spoke for an hour and he did not announce a growth target. And he said, because of the economic uncertainties, the government was not going to focus on GDP. Uh, instead, it was going to focus on stabilizing uh, employment. So it really is a watershed moment for the way that the government sets economic policy here. And so what's your view on that in, in light of a, a GDP drop of historic proportions? How, how well will China weather the storm? Well, I mean, the first thing to say about the target narrowly is that the government really had no good options in the sense that the drop in the first quarter of GDP was 7% year on year. Second quarter is going to be better, but it's still quite weak. So they were in a position where either they would declare a full year target that is going to be inevitably very low, which then is an admission of weakness, or they might aim for a much higher second half target. But that might well end up being unrealistic simply because the uncertainties are, are so great right now. So the easiest thing to do in that context was not to declare a target at all. Now, I think some people might read that as the government is really de-emphasizing growth. But in fact, if you look at a range of other targets that Premier Li laid out today, it's clear that the government still is aiming for a strong economic rebound. They just didn't feel comfortable to, to name a target today. And, and what about the bigger picture in which all of this is, is still happening, the, the coronavirus pandemic, the, the questions around how China dealt with it and so on? Do you, do you think that, uh, that China is well set to, to weather the political storm? 
Well, I think the simple fact of the parliament being convened in Beijing is important. I mean, the government here is determined to have, you know, zero local infections. And so it's been quite a spectacle uh, over the last day to have the, you know, nearly 3,000 delegates filing into the Great Hall of the people in Beijing, all of them wearing masks, except for the, you know, the very senior most leaders um, sitting at the top of the stage unmasked. So the fact that it's gone ahead is, is a sign of confidence to the domestic population population that the virus is basically under control. At the same time, Li Keqiang in his remarks this morning acknowledged that there were serious weak links in the health system that were exposed by the virus. At the same time, you know, if you look at other targets that the government announced, they're aiming for roughly 6.6% increase in military spending this year at the same time as 0% increase in overall government spending. And that, I think, is is important in indicating to both China and also to the outside world that the government, you know, realizes the overall external environment is getting, uh, you know, potentially nastier and less friendly and China is facing it as strongly as it can. Thanks very much for your time, Simon. Thank you, Jason. While China puts on a show of force at home, continues to engage in a tug-of-war with rivals elsewhere. This week's episode of Checks and Balance, our sister podcast, investigates how a new factory in Arizona reveals a serious geopolitical spat. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today, Argentina is likely to miss a $500 million payment on some of its debt, entering a sovereign default. It's not even close to the first time. The country defaulted in 2014. And in 2001. I think Argentina is bankrupt. And I think unless that crisis is resolved, she is going to spiral into chaos. And in 1989. And five other times going back to the 1820s. Each one has left Argentina more unstable and less trusted in foreign markets. Yesterday, the country negotiated a bit more time to restructure its debt. Talks with its creditors have been extended to June 2nd. But failing to pay today could have long-lasting consequences for Argentina's stability. This is D-Day, Jason, for Argentina and its debt. David Smith is our Argentina correspondent. Both sides are still in conversation in negotiations to settle this debt. But in reality, if there's not a a settlement by close of day, and that seems extremely unlikely, then Argentina faces its ninth default. And, And how is it that Argentina finds itself once again at the doorstep of default? Well, we're in year three of an economic downturn here, starting really in 2018 and since becoming a deep recession Back then, we had the government of Mauricio Macri, pro-market, business-friendly, and he'd issued debt with some attractive interest rates. But in 2018, the peso is devalued, interest rates rise in the United States. There's a recession that year in Brazil, 
which after all is Argentina's biggest trading partner. And then here, tragically, a drought affecting the country's enormous agribusiness. So in 2018, Mauricio Macri, then president, turns to the IMF in Washington, D.C. to negotiate a record loan, $57 billion, of which $44 billion was, uh, was taken by his government. So there lies the seeds of this debt. And we've spoken before about what Mr. Macri's successor would, would do about that debt. I mean, how th- have things been going more recently? Well, Alberto Fernandez came to power here at the end of last year. He inherited, Jason, a, an extraordinary debt, more than $320 billion worth of debt. That's 88% of, of the country's GDP. And when Fernandez came to power, he made it very clear he wanted to avoid default at all costs. But his line was, and his argument was, that first we have to get back to growth. So he was asking for time, but he was promising to pay. And then, of course, within a couple of months of taking power, the pandemic hit. Uh, And since then, the country has been facing, as it were, a crisis on two fronts. And and how have those two things intersected? How has the pandemic affected the, the, the bids to pay off the debt? Well, Fernandez, should be said, acted very quickly. President Fernandez shut down the country in mid-March, closed all the frontiers and uh, imposed lockdown. And he's been rewarded, if that's the word, with a relatively low number of deaths and a relatively low number of those who've been infected. But of course, the economy has suffered dramatically in lockdown. I mean, we're now looking at the IMF forecasting contraction in this country of 5 to 6% at least. However, certain, certain world bodies have, have come to the aid, as it were, of Fernandez, specifically the IMF with that huge loan outstanding still. And they've been saying, look, in the circumstances, given the pandemic, there has to be much greater understanding on the part of private creditors. They need to make, quote, a meaningful contribution to the debt because the debt has to be sustainable. And then we've watched leading economists, one of them a former Nobel Prize winner, also point out the dramatic dilemma that the Fernandez government faces, both debt and pandemic. And should be said, Jason, even our Argentine Pope, Pope Francis, has been in the mix, suggesting that his country, Argentina, and others in debt need a little bit of extra help and special help here in the circumstances of this pandemic. And so why hasn't all of that encouragement from from all quarters actually helped? Why has it been so hard to to strike a a workable deal here? Well, I think the deal on the table represents a divide. What the Argentine government has put on the table, a haircut of 62 cents on the dollar, so creditors would get approximately 38 cents on the dollar of what they signed up for, more than 5% reduction in, in capital terms, and most importantly in many ways, a timeline. The Argentine government is asking for three years to repay its debt, and that happens to coincide with an election in three years' time. And, of course, creditors on the other side are asking themselves whether they'll ever get paid. They've been asking for higher interest rates, less of a cut in capital, and a timeline that looks very different one year. That's a pretty big divide. And reality check here, Jason, even to meet the offer that they put on the table, they would need a a primary surplus here in terms of of, uh, the the public account 
of close to half a percent. Well, at the moment, that is simply not in anybody's uh, prognostication for what this country can do. And so here again, Argentina stands at the, at the cusp of default. What, what effect would it have this time around if it were to default? Oh, I think default would, uh, would trigger a country locked out of capital markets completely, as it already is in many ways. Investors obviously flee. On the other hand, I think it is interesting to, to see, Jason, that everybody is working hard to avoid what happened in 2001. I was here in 2001 during the collapse. And, you know, the sight of five presidents in 13 days, the abdicating president of the day, spirited out of the presidential palace in a helicopter with violent protests going on down below and a dramatic, dramatic run on the banks back then. I think if there's a silver lining, it is that everybody on both sides is trying to avoid that kind of dramatic collapse in the age of the pandemic. Because a default, a collapse, the inability of a country to provide itself with medicine, protective gear, amid rising poverty, would almost certainly lead to more deaths from pandemic. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for $12 or £12, just go to economist.com slash radio offer. Well, before even Berland came on the scene, Irish poetry tended to be almost exclusively male. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. It was lyric, epic. The poet was a great figure in Ireland. He was revered and was indeed a hero. And that was the figure that she was faced with when she first thought she wanted to be a poet. She went as an undergraduate to Trinity College, Dublin, and studied English language and literature. And she took part in all the interesting literary conversations that were going on in the cafes and pubs and realised that she did have a vocation to be a writer. In fact, her first collection of poems came out while she was still at university. But the problem was that the voices she met in Irish poetry were these overwhelmingly male ones. And once she got married and became the mother of two young daughters, she found her days were completely different and her whole experience of the world was different. She was now surrounded by nappies and washing up and cleaning and dusting. And she was well aware that everything she did and everything she saw did have a poetry in it. This whole world was not noticed, so she decided she would notice it. And her poems began to make all these ordinary little things into something rather more visionary that both summed up these small housewifely experiences and also went further and found, as she put it, the surfaces of things could hardly contain what was underneath them. One poem for which she became famous was called Night Feed, and that is an account of getting up in the night to feed her baby daughter. I crook the bottle. How you suckle. This is the best I can be. Housewife, to this nursery where you hold on, dear life. It's full of all those little tiny things that perhaps only a woman's eye could notice, like 
the rosy zipped sleeper and the, the silt of milk left behind in the bottle. The last suck, and now your eyes are open, birth coloured and offended. Earth wakes, you go back to sleep, the feed is ended. She also tackled very serious issues for women that certainly hadn't been mentioned in Irish poetry before. One was anorexia, where she pictured the anorexic actually torturing and then burning her body. Flesh is heretic. My body is a witch. I am burning it. And then she wrote about menstruation. I am sick of it, filled with it, dulled by it, thick with it. Then, most shockingly, I think, she deals with the problem of domestic abuse, domestic violence. There's a poem called Feminist Awakening in which she pictures the poor wife who is very dutiful, who is going about her humdrum duties all the time, trying to please her husband, but doesn't feel it's enough. She says, I, I was, was not, not myself, myself myself. And she feels she's not remade until her husband comes in drunk and actually hits her. He splits my lip with his fist, shadow my eye with a blow, knuckles my neck to its proper angle. What a perfectionist. And at the end of the poem, she is almost grateful to be remodelled by him. His are a sculptor's hands. They summon form from the void. They bring me to myself again. I am a new woman. She had taken rather domestic themes for most of her work, but it was impossible living in Ireland to avoid the turbulent and emotional history of the place. She tended to see historical events through the women caught up in them, so that the emigration to America, for example, she saw through the eyes of a mother in a thin coat trying to hold her baby to her as the boat leaves the wharf. And one of her most affecting poems is about the worst winter of the famine in 1847, when a couple set out from the workhouse to try and find a better future. The wife was too weak, therefore the husband carried her, but they were both found frozen to death. But her feet were held against his breastbone. The last heat of his flesh was his last gift to her. She sometimes felt she wasn't making as much progress as she wanted to in Ireland. In 1991, a monumental work called the Field Day Anthology of Irish Writing was published in three big blue volumes, but there were only three contemporary women poets in it, of which she was one. But this made her furious to think that women were still being overlooked. After all, she'd been writing poetry for almost 30 years by then. So she went on quite a campaign to raise awareness again of women's voices and to promote poetry workshops. And gradually, certainly by this century, women poets were flourishing in Ireland. There were many of them. They were doing great work. And she could feel, certainly, that she had changed the conversation somehow and she had made a difference. Make of a nation what you will. Make of the past what you can. There is now a woman in a doorway 
It has taken me all my strength to do this. Anne Rowe on Ivan Boland, who's died aged 75. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here on Monday. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.